We do have Bibles. If you want a Bible, you can raise your hand, and Usher would love to bring you a Bible. We are going to be in John chapter 18. Well, it's great to to gather, not just with our church, but with friends I haven't met yet, with Hope Church, and as Eric said some nice things about me, I just want to say some nice things about Eric. And he, too, has been a great friend, and uh, one of the blessings uh, is that as you hang out with other pastors, I've just been hanging out with a lot of pastors in their 30s and 40s, and so I'm so grateful that Eric has just jumped in and joined our little pastoral network, uh, our monthly lunch, and he can invest in us, speak his wisdom into our lives, and uh, so I'm just grateful that you've given me a friend, uh, Hope Church. Well, we're here to gather once again, as we did this morning, to celebrate, to think, to meditate on the old, old story, right? You've heard that old, old story time and time and time again. The old, old story of Jesus and his birth. You know of the songs about stars whose tail was as long as a kite. You know of the shepherds who just found themselves at the right place at the right time. You know of the brave travel of Joseph and pregnant Mary. You know of the angel song in the manger where the king didn't belong. You guys know the old, old story. It's all over in malls and songs. And if I was an atheist or some other religion, I'd want to bury my head in the sand for all of December because the old, old story is all around. You seem to be able to not run from the old, old story. But as I was thinking about Christmas and as I was studying John chapter 18, I learned something about the old, old story that I had not known before. Something I didn't notice before this past week. In John's gospel, I didn't know that there was only one reference to Jesus' birth in the entire gospel of John. And it doesn't, that reference isn't at the beginning of the book. It's on the day of his death. It is the verse that we're going to look at this evening. Jesus, you might remember, was arrested on false charges, and eventually he was delivered to the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. The Jewish religious high court couldn't get rid of Jesus. They had their kind of religious hands tied behind their back, and so they needed Pontius Pilate to do their dirty work. And so these leaders sort of play right into Pontius Pilate, the governor, into his worst fears. Pontius Pilate's drug of choice Power. And so they bring Jesus in and they say, Jesus wants to overthrow the government. He wants to overthrow the Roman government. You need to put him to death. Otherwise, your job, Pilate, is on the line. And though Pilate initially is like, I don't want to get my hands tied with all this. Like, this is your business. I don't don't want anything to do with this. Eventually, he begins to interrogate Jesus which takes us to John chapter 18. And to sort of set the context of verse 37, I'm going to start back in verse 33. So join me as we begin in John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, 
Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate, did you come to this conclusion by yourself, or is this just gossip and hearsay? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, and this, my friends, is what we want to look at this evening. This is why Christmas comes in the Gospel of John in chapter 18. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? In our text this morning, there are two questions. There's an obvious question that Pilate asks and an implied question that Jesus asks. An obvious question and an implied question. That's how we're going to look at these verses together tonight. Both these questions are essential. But the implied question, the second question, is the weight of this text, and therefore it's going to be the weight of this sermon. An obvious question that Pilate asks, and an implied question that flows from Jesus' reply. Now, let's first look at this obvious question, and it's really easy to pick up. Twice, Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? That's the obvious question. It's what Pilate is wrestling with. It's what most people wrestle with as it relates to religion and as it relates to Jesus. Is Jesus king? Does he have reign over my life? Can he call the shots? And so Pilate begins to wrestle with this. Does Jesus claim to be king? Is he king? And then we read in verse 36, Jesus tells Pilate that he has a kingdom, which implies that he is a king. Only kings have kingdoms, which is quite concerning for Pilate. If you put yourself in his shoes for a moment, his worst fears are coming true. Here's a rival, a rival to his power. Jesus claims to have a kingdom. And Pilate, he knows a lot about kingdoms. He's an insider in the Roman Empire. So Pilate knows that kings and kingdoms are won by the sword, purchased with blood, Gained and conquered by brutal might. Pilate knows that kingdoms are rigged often. Backdoor deals and bribes. Kingdoms are built with the ends always justifying the means. Pilate knows more than most what kingdoms are all about. He's an expert politician. He knows what a kingdom is. He knows what it takes to be a king. And I think largely we do as well. I mean, we don't have a king. But we know how kingdoms work. And we know how often they fail us. How often they disappoint us. We've seen power corrupting and absolute power corrupting. Absolutely. We've experienced that. We might not know as much as Pilate knows about kingdoms, but we know enough. And yet within this context and this exchange, Jesus describes his kingdom. And notice he doesn't describe it descriptively. He doesn't say, as he does in other places, my kingdom is like a mustard seed. My kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. Instead, Jesus answers with an emphatic negative. Do you see that? It's a contrast. 
He says, everything you think of, Pilate, when you think of kingdom, my kingdom ain't like that. My kingdom is not of this world. It functions differently. It looks differently. It feels differently. After all, its origin isn't earthly, but heavenly. Pilate knows only about temporal kings and momentary kingdoms, but Jesus came to set up a kingdom that has no end because he's a king without beginning. 700 years before Christmas, the prophet Micah proclaimed, as we read earlier, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler, that is a king, in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is a king that outdates time. And the theology of this statement goes right over Pilate's head, doesn't it? To Pilate, it just sounds like an admission of guilt. And basically, Pilate then responds, so you are a king. And now we're getting somewhere. Jesus then positively explains his purpose in arriving at Christmas. Jesus came to declare, to display, to shout, to communicate a particular truth. That's what he says to Pilate. I came to display royalty, heavenly royalty, that heavenly royalty had arrived. Jesus came that the Davidic king had finally been marked off in human history the scepter-wielding ruler of Genesis, the conquering line of Judah, the lamb to the slaughter savior, and heaven's divine, divine son has come. One whose origin is from old because he's existed for all eternity. Jesus says, yes, I am a king, and I came to display that truth that I am a king. That's why I came at Christmas, to display a singular truth, that I am the king. Now, I sort of realize that Christmas doesn't, like, shout royalty. The nativity doesn't elicit, like, wow, that's amazing. I mean, it, you read the story, and you're like, it's a pretty normal story. It's, like, trivial and almost forgetful when you think of the, the story. It's like, right now, in Nowheresville, Washington, there's a mother who's giving birth to a, a son right now, and you don't know the mother's name or the son's name. They're just forgettable. That's the Christmas story, isn't it? It's about a, a woman who bears a child in a forgotten town in Judah. They weren't movers and shakers in society. The time seems just superlatively normal. Christmas doesn't shout kingdom and king, and yet here we are, to this day, celebrating the reality that Christmas is pointing to that Jesus is king. Or as the author John put, for this purpose I have come into the world, for this purpose I was born at Bethlehem, to bear witness to the truth, the truth being that Jesus is king. That his manger communicated majesty, his birth communicated divinity, his, bur- uh, his location communicated prophecy fulfilled, his name communicated destiny, and his life foreshadowed his Calvary. That's the purpose of Christmas, to display that particular truth, the answer to the question of, is Jesus king? And I know that many of you have settled 
that question in your own hearts and in your own lives and your own souls. I, along with Eric, had the privilege of pastoring, and one of the things and one of the opportunities and one of the just sheer delights is watching people daily, weekly, yearly, proclaiming the reality that they have answered that question. Through sacrificial living, they are pronouncing and proclaiming that Jesus is king in their life, in their heart, in their hands. And so, as you enjoy tonight's events, tomorrow's events, as you open presents, as you you know, have those shortbread cookies with raspberry, which objectively are the best Christmas cookie. Let all of them remind you of the truth of John 18, 37, which is the answer to the question, is Jesus king? And I hope that all the, the little presents and the sitting by the fire, reading a book, all those little traditions that we do all point and remind you that Jesus is objectively the king. But that's the obvious question. Jesus just kind of proclaims it. There is an implied question that we must consider briefly, and it really is the weight of this text. So Pilate is wrestling with and wonders, is Jesus king? And yet, as I've studied this text, it seems that there is an implied question that just is burst out of Jesus' interaction with Pilate. At the heart of Christmas, let me put it this way. At the heart of Christmas the sort of focal point of the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem. It's not the manger. It's not the inn. It's not the nativity. It's not the star. It's not the wise men three. Those are all just minor notes in a symphonic harmony, all pointing towards one climactic musical score that drives at one essential implied question. And it's not the question that Pilate asks. But it's the question that Jesus answers, though he never asks. If Jesus is king, the implied question from Jesus is this. Is there a way to get into his kingdom? Because notice that? That's the implied question. How then can you, how then can I, how then can any of us be a citizen in this otherworldly kingdom? If Jesus is the king, is there any hope for any of us? to be citizens in that kingdom? That is the implied question and the weight of this text. Jesus is the king. But that's not enough. Just saying that Jesus is the king actually isn't enough, and that's going to sound almost heretical, but it's true. If Jesus is a king, that's good news, but it's also terrifying news if Jesus doesn't want you to be in his kingdom. We could put it this way. A few months ago, In England, they crowned a king. They displayed this person is the king. But I'm not a citizen in that kingdom. So it's not enough just to display that Jesus is king. The question for us is, is there any way to be a citizen, a son and daughter in that kingdom? Because we all know what it's like to be, to just want to be included in the cool kids group, right? We want to be an insider and we're just kept, On the outside, we all know what that feeling is like. It's just not kids. It's all of us. And so even just existentially, we wonder, yes, I believe in God. Yes, he's a king. But am I good enough? 
Does God love me enough? Is there any shot that he could bring me to be part of his kingdom? So we confess that Jesus is king, that all humanity has dreamed of. Jesus is a good king, a wonderful king, a perfect king, a sacrificial king. And then in our text, after he confesses that he is the king, Jesus arrives at Bethlehem wearing the robe of heaven, holding the scepter of divinity. But then he doesn't stop there, does he? He explains that it's not just that he's the king. That's the given. That's the answer to the obvious question. The non-obvious, the sort of implied truth that is so marvelous it almost skips right over our head, I think, because I missed it, is that Jesus, as the king, opens the way into his kingdom. How can I be in Jesus' kingdom? That's the implied question of this text. How can my sin not negate my opportunity in God's kingdom? How can I get a passport to a kingdom whose embassy is in heaven? Is it possible? Verse 37. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You want entrance into Christ's kingdom? Jesus says, this is how you enter Christ's kingdom. You listen to his voice. You listen to his beckoning call. So why did Jesus come on Christmas? He came to draw out, to sort of drown out every voice that's competing with your life other than his. He came holding the first Christmas card, which declared good tidings that the entrance into heaven is open to all who hear his voice and then come. He was born to die and died to be reborn. He came at Christmas to reverse the curse to get people who have been on the outside. He comes at Christmas to say even the outsiders can enter into the kingdom of God. Everyone who is of the truth, who listens to my voice, can enter the kingdom of God. Now, tragically, and I read a portion of it, tragically, Pilate doesn't care about the truth, does he? He doesn't care about Jesus' voice. He can see Jesus. He just can't hear Jesus. And before kind of post-modern philosophy was cool and hip, Pilate was its poster child. What is truth? Your truth is as good as my truth. We are post-truth. You can't handle the truth or whatever. That's Pilate. And I think we can get it. Pilate looked at Jesus and the horrible state that he was in, and he was like, how can this guy be a king? I mean, he can't even afford a Brooks Brothers suit. He can't even, like, talk himself out of getting himself out of this predicament. This guy doesn't look like a king, and whatever his kingdom is, I want earthly. I don't want this otherworldly kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Pilate rejected Jesus. He couldn't hear Jesus. The voices of power and Pleasure and prestige and whatever else were drowning out the voices that, well, drowning out the voices that were right before Pilate, the voice of Jesus himself. And I think if there was ever a, a cautionary tale of Christmas, it's not Scrooge. 
It really is Pilate here. But though it's too late for him, it's not too late for us. Christ came to sing the greatest melody ever sung, God and sinners reconciled. That he is a king, but not just a king, he's a king that would die in order to bring you into his kingdom. And that offer is for all who hear his voice and come. God and sinners reconciled, we sing. That's Christmas. Christ is king. That is the answer to the obvious question. But the implied question is, basically, what are you going to do about it? Will you hear his beckoning voice, enter into his kingdom, or will you, like Pilate, reject him? Let's pray. Lord, we, we acknowledge that all we have, all of the blessings, all of the hardships, the tragedies, the good times and the bad times, all are under your sovereign care. We are grateful to gather to to think about your son Jesus, not only at his birth, but how that was always pointing to his death and its implication for our life, that we can find fullness as we hear your call and respond to that call and follow you. So we just pray that we would continue to sing and worship and glory in your majesty. And we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.